From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, it's all about the iris at AAO 2019. The device is custom hand-painted basically off of a template photo, usually from the patient's good eye. I had the opportunity to interview a number of people advancing the forefront of ophthalmology during the 2019 annual meeting of the American Academy of Ophthalmology in San Francisco. Edited versions of these interviews are presented on iWorld's YouTube channel at iWorldTV.com. I'm going to present these interviews in their entirety over a number of podcasts. Today, we hear from Kevin Miller on an artificial iris implant and from Ashwin Agarwal on refractive pupiloplasty. I'm here with Kevin Miller. Kevin, you, you, you spoke about a very, very interesting subject. So it, the, 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 the big markets, big sort of pathology markets, get most of the attention and, and conversation. We you know, you talk about lenses and MIGs and all that stuff, and, and rightfully so. Uh, you uh, are giving the uh, Charles Cummins lecture on a sort of an underserved population, a population with a, a problem um, for which there has been no surgical FDA-approved treatment. Uh, so let, let me get you to sort of spell this out. Give me the uh, lay of the, of the land. Yeah, well, this is correct. Um, we're talking about patients who have iris defects. Um, and for years, we've been able to fix small iris defects with sutures, and, and that's quite effective. You know, iridotomies, um, traumatic medriasis, uh, things like that, small lacerations that have been you know, caused by screwdrivers and things. But we've never had a good solution for the patient with a large iris defect. Um, our solutions now are wear these tinted glasses or wear this Im- impossible to wear artificial pupil contact lens that you know blocks out some of the light, but then also blocks out your peripheral vision. Um, these patients usually are aphakic, so they're we're talking thick contact lenses, or do what most of them do, which is just close the eye all the time. So it's a miserable experience. And not only that, um, there's the light and glare and photosensitivity and all those issues and the blurred vision and what the loss of contrast, but there is also a, an emotional impact of these iris defects on patients' lives. Not, not just the iris impact, but the iris defect, but the, the initial trauma, because most of these are traumatic, some of them are congenital, but there's the, there's the injury, and then there's the, the, all the comorbidities that come with that, the glaucoma, the failed cornea, all the surgeries. So a lot of emotional pathology that these patients come into your office with. And, and up until recently, we had nothing to offer them other than just keep doing what you're doing, which is wear dark glasses or this, this god-awful um, artificial pupil contact lens. But now we have something to offer. Yeah, talk, talk about that, please. Yeah. So uh, clinical trial ran for multiple years, as most do. Um, FDA um, authorized 580 um, subjects to be enrolled. I think 400 and, I might get this wrong, but 430, 437, I believe, were enrolled. 44 of those were pediatric eyes, and then 403 were um, adult eyes. <clears throat> they went through a one-year follow-up course. Um, there was no randomization because you can't randomize these people to living as they are. So it's it's a consecutive series, surgical series, and you know, looking at the usual outcomes, looking at um, patient-reported um, satisfaction, um, reduction of symptoms, and then um, complications and adverse events. And you know, so suffices to say, the FDA thought the thing was safe and effective. So as of May 
2018, just last year, it was FDA approved, and then it got to the, um, the, the labeling issues by October. So as of October last year, we now have a device that's commercial, it's available. Um, surgeons have to go through a certification process in order to be um, able to order the device and implant it, and they have to have uh, fulfill a, a number of prerequisites to be um, eligible to even go through the certification process. So this will not be um, implanted by by novice surgeons. This has to be a very experienced surgeon who's been in the eye many, many times and has dealt with complex cases. And what what does the the device look look like? What's it made from? Are are there avenues for aqueous flow through it? How do yeah. tell me? Tell me. So this device is silicone. Um, there are other device manufacturers out there. Uh, Optec makes a uh, PMMA lens, a PMA iris, and an iris lens combinations. Um, Morcher does the same. There's this PMMA, and there's a Russian company called Reaper or Reaper NN that makes an acrylic device. So there, so the the human optics device, the one we're speaking of, is a silicone iris. It's a, it has no integrated optic like some of the others do, just a silicone device. But it's rollable or foldable. You can inject it through a a, a larger you know IOL injector. Um, it comes in two models: a fiber containing and a fiber free model. If you're just going to passively fixate the device inside the capsule bag or in the sulcus, you can use the the fiber-free model, but if you're going to suture it to something, you'll want the fiber-containing model because it'll resist uh, you know, the cheese wiring. And the device is custom hand-painted uh, uh, basically off of a template photo, usually from the patient's good eye. Most of these are um, traumatic cases, so they have a good eye and they have the traumatized eye. Now, if it's a congenital case, which a few of them are, um, then they can just pick up a stock photo. You know? and we usually encourage, I, I currently now encourage brown because the congenitals all have a bad uh, sensory nystagmus. And if you have a brown eye and you have a nice nystagmus, it's the cosmetic effect that's not so bad. But if you have a blue or green eye, which I tell you, every single congenital anorak wants blue eyes. I don't know why, but that's just the way it's been playing out. And I used to fall into the trap of giving them their blue eyes, but then the, the nystagmus becomes so obvious cosmetically that I now really discourage that. So custom painted, uh, according to the patient's fellow eye, we don't change eye color with this. It's not a cosmetic implant. It's just to, to restore kind of a natural look to that. And, and that it does in an incredible way. And, and what is the surgical technique like? All over the map. Because it depends on the patient's ocular comorbidities. So um, about a third of the cases that I do involve uh, corneal transplant. Um, another maybe 10% have a failing cornea, but we'll put the thing in, make the cornea fail further, and then we'll do an endothelial keratoplasty after that. Um, a few of them um, will go in at the time of cataract surgery. That's probably the mi minority. Um, a lot of them are sutured in. Um, they have a cornea that's going to probably make it through, so we'll just uh, we'll, we'll suture a lens to the back of the artificial iris, and then nowadays we're suturing the iris to the sclera, usually using Gore-Tex. We'll suture the iris to the, and the lens together using proline. Um, and then there's no issues with uh, blockage of aqueous uh, from the posterior segment to the anterior segment. In the early days, we would uh, do a, an iridectomy on the artificial iris, thinking we had to preserve some route for, for aqueous um, flow. But there's not been a single case report of, of, of pupillary block, or I'm not even sure what you call it here, but block of flow. And so every, every one of us that started this years ago basically given up doing the, um, the iridotomy or iridectomy. Uh, really, really, really interesting. Um, uh, granted that the sort of clinical setting is uh, is a fairly broad spectrum for these patients. Yes. There are a lot of different things that patients are coming to the table with. Uh, it's it's not all that fair for me to ask what adverse events you've you've um, 
observe, but I mean, obviously that's an important question. Yeah. So the biggest adverse event um, would be um, corneal decompensation. Most of these eyes are, on, are teetering on the edge of decompensation, and we tell them, you know, this is just one more insult to your eye to put this iris and perhaps this lens into your eye. You're going to go from a count of 920 cells per square millimeter probably down to 600. Maybe you'll survive for another year or two. But, you know, the writing's on the wall. Your cornea's going to fail at some point just a matter of when. And when that happens, no problem. We'll just do an endothelial keratoplasty. Um, about a third of the patients that come in that have had this history have glaucoma already. One of the questions is, does this cause glaucoma? If it does, it's, it's the incremental change is so small to be not an issue. So are these patients you know, on glaucoma drops or do they get tubes? Yeah, a lot of them. But we're not seeing a lot of additional glaucoma from this, at least in the short term. I mean, these eyes all had bad injuries, so you know, their long-term outlook of a remaining glaucoma-free is not very good. But, but, but failed corneas are probably the number one thing um, in terms of you know, long-term. But you know, these are the same people who are going to fail. Instead of failing in a year or two, they're going to fail in five or six years because of their injury. Right, and, uh, and, and as you say, there's no um, ethical or, or, or practical way to do a, right. a controlled study. Right. Uh, so, yeah. You can uh, imagine randomizing people to keep your eye, your really screwed up, slightly sensitive eye for the next five or six years while we make you a control to somebody who's in a clinical trial. That's, or, you know, on the study arm of a clinical trial. Who's yeah. going to sign up for that trial? Yeah, no, 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 no of course not. Um, to, and, and what is the, the, the device called? It's the Human Optics uh, Custom Flex Artificial Iris. So it was, um, the, it was the concept of a, of, a, of a German ophthalmologist, Hans Reiner Koch, and uh, he worked through a company called Dr. Schmidt Intraocularensen. That, that company was then licensing the product through Human Optics, which then later acquired it. And now that it's FDA approved in the United States, it's being distributed through a, a local company called Veo or VEO Ophthalmics. And the price is, 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 is a little bit shocking. It's $7,700. That's just for the device. And at this, at this point in time, we don't have, this is a brand new product, so we don't have CPT codes, HixPix codes, none of that stuff. So that's being worked on, but patients at this moment are still having to pay that out of pocket. For but the, I mean, it's, as you say, it's, it's, it's hand-painted, yeah. you know, to The, the work patient. effort that goes into this, it, from the time we order the device until we receive it, it's 12 to 14 weeks, so it's a process. Yeah, really, really, really interesting stuff. Um, I, I can see why... You're giving the Kelman lecture for for this, um, Kevin. I want to thank you very much for 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 bringing this this interesting topic, this device, to us, uh, and especially I, I want to thank you for the generosity of of your time with us today. Josh, it's great being with you, and great being in San Francisco. And I uh, hope some people can come out and watch the lecture. I'm here with my friend Ashwin Agarwal. Uh, Ashwin, it, it, there there are. At, at this meeting, there is discussion about extended depth of focus lenses. These are lenses, okay? There are, there's discussion about small aperture uh, lenses. Right. Um, and I emphasize that be, because there are patients who would benefit from technology in which they have an extended depth of focus, not for presbyopia correction. And you are bringing to the fore an idea that yields the, the same sort of benefit, but without any lens, without any implant. What is this magic? Oh, well, I, I think, uh, first of all, thank you, Josh, for having me uh, in, the, in your studio. And uh, so the concept here was to actually try and use a different platform. And I know that 
when we talk about refractive correction of these patients, we usually talk about corneal-based uh, procedures such as an inlay, or we're talking about a lens-based procedure, procedure such as the ICA for Mackie Focus, or uh, some of these platforms which are, honestly speaking, one, expensive to the patient and the uh, surgeon doing them. Number two, not accessible to a lot of countries around the world. And uh, honestly, they're going to see more and more uh, regulatory and other issues when you come to using products inside the eye uh, with uh, stuff like that happening. So what uh, their concept was to use the iris as a platform. The iris as a platform was always meant to do a shutter's job of a camera. And that is something that we want to bring back to the table. And if we understand the shutter, the minute you shut the shutter size to an apt or an optimal level, you're actually able to get a clear quality picture from uh, any camera. Using that concept, if you, use a, if you reduce the pupil size using a pupiloplasty technique uh, of your choice, whichever pupiloplasty technique of your choice, but the concept is to reduce the size of the pupil to around 1.5 millimeters. And this is an average I'm taking. We have different occluders of 1.6, 1.5, 1.4, uh, occluders and you base it based on what the patient is seeing best because there's 1.5 as an average why do I take 1.5 not 1 is the question uh, sometimes asked to me and the reason why I think 1 does not work is because the amount of light going inside itself shuts down the clarity of vision is there so basically your patient be walking around like a, one single camera uh, one single candle in a room you can see things it's clear but it's dim yeah, actually, there, there, there's another, I mean, humor me because I'm, I'm, an, I'm an optics geek. If you start bringing the pupil size down more also, it's actually, you actually lose clarity Absolutely. because there, there are diffraction, diffraction. Yeah, limitations. Absolutely. And, the, and the optimal, this is, as you can guess, the, 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 I hope I'm not disclosing anything that I shouldn't, uh, but the, the conversations of the group of authors of the, the standard optics textbook, of, of which I'm a member, um, uh, one of the hotly debated topics was what is the optimal pupil size? Right. And yeah, I mean, you, you can't get a lot smaller than, than 1.5, yeah. uh, regardless of the amount of, of photon loss Absolutely. Uh, because of, of the of, diffraction yeah, yeah. Um, it again goes back to diffraction yeah yeah no, no I'm, I'm so happy you bring that up you bring up more things so uh, so there is uh, also what happens if you drop the pupil size to 1.5 the concept of uh, vignetting so basically it shuts down all the other stuff around and you're actually focusing on what you really want to see that's really helping in especially where do you use these cases where do you use these this concept is actually used more in really high end astigmatism when you have cases such as rk previously done rk procedures when you have uh, procedures such as old lasik flaps which you are not able to recorrect uh, dal you want to switch between from keratoconus which are already stable but now you, you decide whether you want to go DALC or you want to go already 45. Can you do a clear lens extraction and do a pupiloplasty? That's a beautiful choice. And actually, they've worked so well for us uh, in, in the recent past. Yeah, no, this is, this is wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, 
Yeah, when when you already have a a, a highly a regularly multifocal cornea, uh, any conventional lens choice is is not going to, uh, you know, I mean, it's not going to suffice. Yeah, yes. it's not going to help. Um, so, um, what you're doing is you're creating. Uh, in sort of the, the the current lingo that you know the cool kids use is is that this is an an extended depth of focus system, but you're not using it for presbyopia. You're using it to uh, deal with the fact that you have this sort of multifocal cornea, and uh, the cornea itself has multiple um, multiple refractive powers, and you're creating a system in which your extended depth of focus incorporates all of these, these, these powers. And I'm so happy that you bring up radiokeratotomy because that's a, a, a kind of a shifting target too. Yeah. There's one very important concept, I think, which uh, a lot of the surgeons and clinicians must understand is that of cord mu. The but cord tell me mu. about that. Yeah, so cord mu is basically the distance between the pupillary axis and the visual axis of that patient. And in usually when you see these patients, and you can pick this up on a pentacam, it's always available there. And uh, the minute you see it on a pentacam, preoperatively in a patient which has a high astigmatism, you'll see that that distance is a little off. The minute you finish doing this procedure, you're actually bringing that cord mute down, uh, reducing the size of that, uh, the limit of that cord mute. The minute you do that, visual clarity is a directly proportional aspect to this. And this is something that we're starting to uh, see more and more, examine more and more. We're on the verge of measuring this for patient to patient. So each millimeter, of what's the size and what's the cord mu that you should be able to attain at the end of it. And that's something that we're really strongly advocating uh, to visualize in your pentacams when you're seeing this. Or no, any, uh, it mean, any topography. For, uh, really, really interesting. How, how do you... Um, how do you center the, the pupil? And how do you personally center fabulous. Okay, that's a fabulous question. So first up, uh, no, no, uh, no anesthesia, no this thing. You, you take the first Purkinje image. The first Purkinje image of the eye is where you center. Uh, that is the number one. There are four Purkinje. Yeah. You take the first Purkinje image, and that's the center point that you There, there are four if the, if the patient's to the fake. Correct. Yeah. So... That's the point you want to hit uh, as soon as you uh, go for the, when you're trying to center it. Now, second, when you're on the table, so mark it before you go on the, on the slit lamp, mark that. Now take it on the table because it can shift in and out when you're on the table. Now when you're on the table, we also have a pinhole marker which basically gives me that 1.5 outside. So mark around that on the cornea itself with the marker, how much you want to measure. You can also take that inside the eye, that same marker can be taken inside the eye to also measure at the end of the procedure to check whether you've actually got 1.5. Sometimes it's really difficult to know if it's 1.5 or 1.8 uh, in that measure. So some certain small tricks that we also are using is sometimes when you do pupilloplasty, you have to do a couple of them and it, you end up with a oval-shaped uh, uh, pupil. We do use cutter, uh, vitrectomy cutter at some points of time, sometimes, to just make that round edge completely round. Yeah, that, that, that's the a, small, that's a, finer that's a clip point. tips which, uh, which yeah, uh, help. No, no, that's great. So, um, the, the eye is not innately optimized for a, a pupil that small, yes. and the photoreceptors themselves are 
oriented to have their maximal sensitivity across a, a larger pupil. Is, is there anything, is there any adaptation at the level of, of the retina to, that goes on after a, a procedure like this? Uh, there is an effect called the Stills-Crawford effect. The Stills-Crawford effect states basically that at the level of the rods, not the cons, at the level of the rods, the perceptive light that it perceives is scattered all across, more so from the periphery of the rods. But when you come to the cones, the maximal acceptance comes basically from the center and nothing from the side. And this effect actually advocates or let's say it supports what we're trying to do with pinhole pupiloplasty. And if you combine cord mu, you combine uh, vignetting and you combine the still Crawford's effect, they all are supportive evidence that pin, pinhole pupiloplasty actually works uh, and why it works. Some of the principal principles behind how it functions. And these are some of the uh, supportive evidence for uh, pinhole pupiloplasty. Yeah, this is really, really great, great stuff. And, and like, like a lot of things that are really smart, after the fact, they're really obvious, you know, uh, but, uh, but you thought of it. Um, Ashwin, the, the, this is really, really great. Uh, I uh, want to thank you for, for, for bringing, you know, something that seems simple and then demonstrating that it's, you know, it's really multifaceted and then again making it simple. Uh, that's, that's class. Uh, so, so anyway, thank you for... For, for bringing this this to us. And as always, thank you. thank you for being so very generous with your time with me today. Thank you so much, Josh. It's a, always a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Kevin Miller is professor and the Colocatronus Chair in Ophthalmology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA in Los Angeles. Ashwin Agarwal is Chief of Clinical Services at Dr. Agarwal's Eye Hospital in Chennai, India. Ask questions of Dr. Miller, Dr. Agarwal, or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Write to me with your questions or comments at josh at iWorld.org. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.